You could imagine this boiler that they had in the 1600s riveted together, right? And they just pressurized it and it made people feel better. So you think about it, all that healing power that comes from that inrush of oxygenated blood is like, huh, it gets, it gets through the poorly perfused spot. Is it fixes something called oxygen debt. People in poor health, smokers, those emphysema patients, they're nauseous, they have an inability to take a full breath. And we're helping this oxygen debt by paying back that oxygen debt. And that is what we can help do. Welcome to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, where we meet the world's top experts to explore the secrets of health, mindset, longevity, and so much more. Are you ready to take charge of your existence and biohack your life? This show is for you. Please keep in mind, we're not dispensing medical advice and are not responsible for any outcomes you may experience from implementing the tactics lying herein. Welcome back to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Merry Christmas Eve, friends, or Christmas, or I hope you had a Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays, whatever holidays you may be celebrating. I just hope this wintry season is being absolutely beautiful for you. Super excited about today's episode. I'd been wanting to do an episode on hyperbarics for quite a while, and I knew I needed to find just the right guy. Joe is absolutely so amazing. He's just such a wealth of knowledge and has so much experience in the hyperbarics world. I learned so much in this episode, not just about hyperbarics, but pressure and oxygen and how different gases and pressure affect our body and just so many things. I really think you guys will enjoy it. The show notes for today's episode will be at melanieavalon.com slash hyperbarics. Those show notes will have a full transcript, so definitely check that out. There will be two episode giveaways for this episode. One will be in my Facebook group, IF Biohackers, Intermittent Fasting plus Real Foods plus Life. Comment something you learned or something that resonated with you on the pinned post to enter to win something I love. And then check out my Instagram for another giveaway. Again, find the announcement post about this episode and comment there to enter to win something that I love. If you are enjoying this show, it would mean the absolute world, 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 world. If you could take a brief moment and write an iTunes review, it helps so much more than most people realize like so, so much. So thank you. Thank you so much in advance for that. I have a very exciting announcement, friends. I have officially launched a TikTok channel. I've been on Instagram for a while, but it is time for TikTok. And with the channel, I'm going to be posting daily, very high quality, awesome biohacking content tips and tricks, things from my life. And I really want to bring the glam to biohacking because I feel like biohacking can be very male-centric or focused on a certain type of person. And I just want to break that stereotype and bring all the sparkles. So please join me there. My handle is Melanie Avalon Official. Please let me know what you'd like to see from me, what you think of the content. I do feel pretty shy about it. So please join me so that we can be friends and just go on the most epic biohacking adventure. Okay, friends, spirulina update. It is still coming. I know it's been taking a while. It's just because I want to make the most ideal spirulina tablets on the market, ones that are tested for purity and potency and to be free of all pesticides and just the highest quality. So we've got that spirulina source. It tastes awesome. The issue we're experiencing is that in order to make it into tablets, it requires another ingredient. If you're currently taking spirulina tablets and they say they are one ingredient, they are not one ingredient. There is something in there that is helping to keep that structure. So we're trying to figure out which route to go with this. It's really fun because I keep trying different samples. I think I know which one I like the most, but we'll see which one I end up picking. 
Either way, I really love the taste of our spirulina. It doesn't taste fishy or LGE, and I really experienced the benefits. So stay tuned for that. In the meantime, you can get my other Avalon X supplements at avalonx.us. Friends, have you jumped on the serapeptase bandwagon yet? That's what I launched with, and to this day, it continues to be my most favorite supplement ever. It's a proteolytic enzyme created by the Japanese silkworm. When you take it in the fasted state, it actually breaks down non-living problematic proteins in your body, so it can help address an array of issues. Like I said, it will clear your sinuses, calm inflammation, It may help reduce cholesterol. Studies have shown it can break down amyloid plaque. It can help alleviate pain and so much more. I take it daily. It is one of the most important supplements in my arsenal. This is the new year. Start it off right. Get some serapeptase. You can get 10% off with the coupon code Melanie Avalon, as well as a 20% off code when you text Avalon X to 877-861-8318. That's Avalon X to 877-861-8318. Those codes will also work with my fantastic partner, MD Logic Health. For that, go to melanieavalon.com slash mdlogic. And of course, all of my supplements I formulated to be the very best on the market. They're tested multiple times for heavy metals and mold. They're free of all common allergens as well as problematic fillers, which goes back to that whole spirulina formulation issue I was talking about. They come in glass bottles to help prevent leaching of plastics into ourselves and the environment. And we even use the minimal amount of stickiness required for the labels to help with our environmental impact. To get these fantastic products, go to avalonx.us and definitely get on my email list so that you don't miss the Spirulina launch special. For that, go to avalonx.us slash email list. Another resource for you guys If you struggle with food sensitivities like I do, you have got to get my app, Food Sense Guide. It's a comprehensive catalog of over 300 foods for 11 potentially problematic compounds. These include things you may be reacting to, like gluten, lectins, FODMAPs, histamine, oxalates, sulfites, thiols, whether or not something is a nightshade, and so much more. It even includes autoimmune paleo AIP status. You can learn about the compounds, create your own list to share and print, and finally take charge of your food sensitivities. It is a top Apple app, often in the top 10 for the Apple food and drinks charts. And friends, get it now because I'm going to be updating it to a subscription basis soon. So you definitely want to get grandfathered in for life at one super low price. With the subscriptions, by the way, I'm going to be implementing some pretty cool features. So I need to do subscriptions to help support that. So like I said, get it now before we change to subscriptions. You can get it at melanieavalon.com slash foodsenseguide. And one more thing before we jump in. Did you know there are over a thousand compounds found in conventional skincare and makeup in the U.S. that have been banned in Europe due to their toxicity? If you are using conventional skincare and makeup, you are directly putting into your bloodstream toxic compounds, including obesogens, which can literally cause your body to store and gain weight. So if your diet's not working, you might want to think about what's happening with your skincare and makeup, as well as carcinogens linked to cancer. I'm not making this up. And just endocrine disruptors in general, which with our hormones. Thankfully, there's an easy solution to this. There's a company called Beauty Counter and they were founded on a mission to change this. Every single ingredient is extensively tested to be safe for your skin so you can truly feel good about what you put on and their products really work. I am obsessed with their overnight resurfacing peel, their vitamin C serum, they have shampoo and conditioner, skincare lines for every skin type, 
and incredible makeup. It's so amazing that Tina Fey actually wore all beauty counter makeup when she hosted the Golden Globes. So yes, it is high definition camera ready. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code clean for all 20 to get 20% off site-wide. You can get the latest updates from me, specials, sales, samples, and so much more on my email list. That's at melanieavalon.com slash clean beauty. And you can join me in my Facebook group, Clean Beauty and Safe Skincare with Melanie Avalon. People share product reviews and their experiences, and I do a giveaway every single week in that group as well. And lastly, if you're thinking of making clean beauty and safe skincare a part of your future, like I have, I definitely recommend becoming a Band of Beauty member. It's sort of like the Amazon Prime for clean beauty. You get 10 10% back in product credit, free shipping on qualifying orders, and a welcome gift that is worth way more than the price of the year-long membership. It is totally, completely worth it. And I'll put all this information in the show notes. An important announcement, friends. My EMF blocking products are coming. Make sure you don't miss the launch special. For that, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list. EMFs are actually classified by the IARC as a group 2B, possibly carcinogenic to humans. These are such a problem. We are exposed to them through our Wi-Fi, our cell phones, our AirPods, And they are linked to so many health issues, including anxiety, migraines, headaches, even fertility issues. This is such a problem. Thankfully, you can address your EMF exposure. I'm going to help with that with my Avalon X EMF blocking product line. So again, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list to check that out. All right, without further ado, please enjoy this wonderful conversation with Joe Deturi. Hi, friends. Welcome back to the show. I am so incredibly excited about the conversation that I am about to have. It is a long time coming, and I do have a little bit of a backstory behind it. So, on this show, I talk about a lot of the biohacking things, and one of the biohacking things that has been around for actually a long time and probably wasn't even originally a biohacking thing is hyperbaric oxygen therapy. I keep seeing it everywhere. People talk about it on different podcasts, on different shows. I've been very fascinated by it. The problem with all of this is that I actually... (laughs) I have a very strange phobia. I have claustrophobia and then I actually get very distressed by the concept of pressure on things. I don't know if this is like a thing, but I get really stressed about the concept of pressure if I think about it. So hyperbaric oxygen therapy (laughs) requires getting in a small ish device with pressure on you. So I've been sort of actively avoiding it for a while, but then it kind of just got thrown in my face because I had on the show multiple times, Dr. Kirk Parsley, who you guys have loved the episodes with him. He's a sleep expert. So we'll put links in the show notes to those interviews, but he was doing research on hyperbaric oxygen therapy with his friend, Dr. Or I should say, commander, (laughs) Joseph Deturi, and sort of just forced it in my face and was like, do you want to do an episode on hyperbaric oxygen therapy? And I was like, I guess I really need to. (laughs) And so we got connected and I met Joe and talked to him and was just blown away by his knowledge and his insight. And it made me really interested in learning more. And actually, since then, this is what I was going to tell you, Joe, I actually did some hyperbarics myself. You did not. I did. I did. (laughs) Oh, you inspired me. I'm proud of you. 
Yeah, it, it was really, really wonderful. So I'm really excited to dive deep into the science. And so listeners, I'll tell listeners a little bit about your ridiculously extensive resume. It's very overwhelming. So Commander Joseph Deturi, he is a retired naval officer. He has a BS in computer science, a master's degree in astronomical engineering. What's the third one? PhD. The PhD. And what's the PhD in? Biomedical engineering. Biomedical engineering with a focus on life support equipment design, high carbon dioxide environments, and hyperbaric and hypobaric medicine. Maybe we can um, discuss the differences there. He has an array of awards from the Navy. It's just overwhelming. I'll put a link in the show notes to his full bio so so you can check them out. And he is also the director of the Undersea Oxygen Clinic. He's the course director for a UHMS-approved 40-hour introductory hyperbaric course. He's an associate professor at the University of South Florida. And he is the co-author. We were just talking about this before we started recording. He has a book called Exploration and Mixed Gas Diving Encyclopedia Friends this book. If you want to know anything about diving or hyperbarics, it's intense. <laughs> it's amazing. There's a lot in there. And then he also has a children's book that he wrote with his daughter called My Daddy Wears a Different Kind of Suit to Work. And it's adorable and I love it. So we'll put a link in the show notes to all of that. But whew, all of that said, Dr. Deturi, thank you so much for being here. If you don't call me doctor, <laughs> come on, please don't. <laughs> can we just go with Joe? That'd be great. I can go with Joe, yes. Thank you. Okay. I feel uncomfortable. I want to look around for my dad or something. I'm like, uh, okay. Well, Joe, thank you so much for being here. I've really been looking forward to this. And yes, yeah, so I, I did hyperbarics. How many sessions did I do? I probably, and we can talk about, I mean, there's so much to talk about. We can talk about what... I probably did not do, you know, the protocol the way I should have done it, but I did multiple sessions over a month because I had a membership somewhere that had free free sessions for a month. Yeah, which was really nice. Then they get you though because then after the month, you know, you have to <laughs> pay for it. But so much to tackle. To start things off, I just said a lot about you, but would you like to tell listeners a little bit about your own story? I'm really, really curious to know about your experience in the Navy and what made you so interested in hyperbaric medicine and what you're doing now with diving and just all of the stuff. I'm I'm fascinated by it. So what happened? Sure, I'd love to. So I spent 28 years in the Navy as a, uh, first I was a special operations diver, and then I became an engineering duty diver. And I worked with Dr. Parsley. As a matter of fact, he was my doc at Deep Submergence Unit when I was in charge of the deep, uh, the diving detachment there. You know, he was my doc and we'd go off together and we became, you know, really probably one of my best friends in the world. I love it. But all of my life in in the military was all about life support systems. So so my master's degree, you mentioned, it's in astronautical engineering, but that is with a life support systems bent, right? And then biomedical engineering, well, that's with a life support systems bent. And then when I finished over at Deep Submergence Unit, I came to U.S. Special Operations Command and I helped build, well, I was the guy who they called in to build and design dry combat submersible, which is nothing more than a life support system. It's a, it's a submersible, goes underwater, but it's pressurized, so it's just like a hyperbaric chamber. And, you know, I, I had to learn all the rules. I had to go through all the system certification authority, and I was the guy. Like, literally, Admiral Bill McRaven calls me into his office and says, Aquanaut, go build me dry combat submersible. And I'm like, but, sir, I need money. He said, Commander, 
Which part of Go Build Me Dry Combat Submersible don't you understand? Oh, uh, yes, yeah, sir. Go. No problem. $22 million. Okay, I'll, I'll make it work. <laughs> so, so that was it. Now it's, I think, a $1.4 billion programmer record. And we have like three dry combat submersibles and we're, we're pumping them off the line and we've produced, you know, we're in the process of producing these things. But it was great because literally this idea started in a bar with a couple of Navy SEALs and an engineer and a, and a napkin. And I'm not joking. And I wish I had kept that napkin. <laughs> so, you know, my, my life centers around and, and, you know, if you think about like, like I look at my vision board all the time and it says, what, what do I want to do when I grow up? And it's perform studies to make aquanauts, astronauts and undersea structures, including submersibles safer. And that's what I want to be when I grow up. And that's what I've wanted to be since the beginning. So it's all life support systems. It's all that same bent. So I did all that time in the Navy. I retired. And when I retired, you know, Bill Mc Admiral McRaven offered me a great job at SOCOM doing almost the same thing I was doing when I was in only just being the guy. And I said, look, I want to do something, not this. I want to, I want to start helping people. So I want to start living that dream. I want to start living that goal. Went back to school, got a PhD in biomedical engineering. And then it, now it's like, okay, now I can, I can start writing papers because well, the, the impetus for the PhD, I didn't really even want a PhD, but I started to try and write papers and they said, Oh, sorry, you, you don't have a PhD. And I'm like, like, it's hard. They're like, Oh, it's very difficult. I'm like, Oh, do me a favor. Hold my beer. I will be right back. Five years later, I come back and they're like, damn it. Now we have to listen to him. He has a PhD. <laughs> so, but yeah, that's a little bit about me. If that helps and hopefully the journey, if that gives you any insight. Uh, yeah. No, that already got me thinking about things I have never thought about in my entire life. I don't think I've ever actively contemplated life support systems. Like, so is there a, like life support systems, like diving underwater compared to you talked about like astronauts, are they all like just completely different? Are there overlaps there? I've, I've just never thought about this before. 100% the same thing. Do you know that astronauts have to decompress to get into the U.S. spacesuit? No. Yeah, we worked out all that decompression math. When I say we, it really wasn't me, but it was a guy who was my teacher at one point, Mike Gernhardt. And, you know, he was an astronaut and he worked out all that math and divers will make the best astronauts. I'm telling you, I'm here to say it. I had a lifelong goal of becoming an astronaut. I still have that dream. I'm holding on, but I don't have $28 million. If you have $28 million, I'll take a seat on the, uh, the next shuttle going up. Like what is the pressure on a diver compared to an astronaut? Yeah. So it's pressure in the opposite direction. So when we go underwater, we increase in pressure, right? And for every 33 feet, we add another 14 or 14.7, 15, 15 pounds. So as you increase that pressure, what Haldane said, old dead guy who made a rule, what Haldane said was you can cut the atmosphere in half and not do any decompression. So I can go from two atmospheres to one atmosphere and require no decompression. That seems to hold true in the whole mathematical process. When, when you model decompression, it's a third order partial differential equation. So it's a lot of math, right? And you're modeling 16 individual compartments and their uptake and their, their off-gassing each time and all the, all the bubble nucleonics and the math behind the pressure volume temperature relationship. So as you model that, you find that, yeah, Haldane was actually correct. You can double the atmosphere or half the atmosphere and not worry about it. So 
when we go down, we double the atmosphere and then we decompress and come into uh, come up back to one atmosphere. So we're living at one atmosphere right now. If you weighed all the molecules from here to the top of the stratosphere in one square inch, it would be about 14.7 pounds. So that pressure is pressing on us right now as you speak. So it's like this is this is the pressure that you have surrounding you. It's air pressure. And every 33 feet you go underwater for one inch a square, that's another 14.7. Well, as you go up, so here we are in the International Space Station, which is also at 14.7 pounds per square inch. Well, it also turns out that our spacesuit is at 4.3 PSI or pounds per square inch. So that is way less than half the atmosphere. So we have to be, when we get in that spacesuit, we have to be using pure oxygen in that spacesuit. We have to be scrubbing out the carbon dioxide, the natural byproduct of oxygen metabolism. And then we have to decompress to get into it because it's less than one half the atmosphere, which is what Haldane said way back in those days. And it turns out to be true. So this is, it's kind of a decompression theory program problem. And everybody goes, well, why don't we just make our spacesuit, you know, seven or eight PSI? Well, you know, so because so that we can get into it really easily without doing any quote unquote decompression. The Russian spacesuit is at nine PSI. So you can get in that without any decompression. That's pretty easy and straightforward. The Ortolan spacesuit is, is one of the things that we use when we are in the International Space Station, but it doesn't have near the dexterity that ours does. So if you want to do a small, minute task or something that involves finger wiggling, you could imagine that nine pounds per square inch on your fingers, because what's the atmosphere like outside of the spacesuit? Well, you're in, you're in zero. So you're in grab, you know, that, that whole vacuum of space, right? So here you are in this vacuum of space, you're at zero PSI. The difference between nine pounds per square inch on the tips of your fingers and four and a half pounds per square inch. Well, that's what we, that's what we want is we want less pounds so that there's less of a change in pressure. So you can have more dexterity and be able to do stuff. So if you don't go through these decompression protocols or don't do it safely, what would happen on both extremes, like on the bottom of the ocean and then up in the sky? <laughs> yeah. So what you do is you get bent. The ideology of the bends or decompression sickness comes from when we were working on the Brooklyn Bridge back in the day, the divers that weren't divers, they were called sand hogs at the time, they would go down to the bottom and they'd dig out, we, we'd put the case on, we'd put a big case on, we'd put it in the water and then we'd fill it with air and then we'd push it all the way down to the bottom of the seabed there, which was 30 feet or so. And we'd pressurize it and then the guys would climb in there and they'd dig and dig and dig and dig and dig. And that worked out great until they hit bedrock and then they fill it with cement and that becomes the entire bridge abutment. Basically, that's what you build the entire bridge upon. There's two spans in the Brooklyn Bridge, no problem. One span hit what we call the, the bottom or, or the seabed floor, it hit that bottom and there was no problem, piece of cake. But then the second one on the Manhattan side was much deeper. So they tried to push the case on all the way down. And when they started going all the way down before they hit bedrock, they got to like 50 or 60 feet before they actually hit bedrock. And the people would come out of there with the bends. They would literally bend over in half and go, oh, and then they'd fall on the floor and they maybe they'd die or maybe they'd just be paralyzed. But we didn't know what was wrong with them. We're talking we're talking in 1873. Andrew Smith was the first person to term the the 
coined the term Kaysan's disease, right? And he had 110 cases of decompression sickness as a physician in charge on the Brooklyn Bridge. So it's like, holy mackerel, that's when we started using hyperbaric oxygen. And it, honestly, even before that, when you, when you think about it, this guy named Henshaw in 1664, he used compressed air as what's called a domicilium or basically a room that improved digestion and respiration because all he did was like, you could imagine this boiler that they had in the 1600s riveted together, right? And they just pressurized it and it made people feel better. So you think about it. This has been around almost 400 years. <laughs> And the reverse, if you're an astronaut, would you like explode outwards? You wouldn't explode outward, but you would just be bent. You would just be bent. You, you would basically bend over at the waist. It's the same exact thing because the inert gas bubbles that are absorbed in your tissues tend to come out. They come out of solution and they cause this. Uh, you probably heard a lot of this during COVID, a cytokine storm or uh, a systemic inflammatory uh, disease, if you will. Uh, it's, it's, that's the kind of thing that happens during a decompression sickness hit. It's, you know, the phagocytes and the leukocytes all get activated and then they call the macrophage out. The point being that you have this over ridiculous response. It's like a histamine response to a bee sting, right? When you get this bee sting, what happens? It swells up. That's the same thing that's happening inside your whole body. It's a systemic inflammatory response and your body's in overload, right? So you're, you're just hurting. And this is why when you come out of the water, you bend over at the waist or when you're up in that, in that spacesuit and you start working and you start increasing your circulation, i.e. perfusion, now you're increasing your perfusion, so you bend over at the waist and you feel like you're in pain. I mean, like intense girdle pain, real real visceral pain uh, that comes from DCS or that can come. You know, pilots get bent all the time. So the SR-71 Blackbird, when we used to fly it, used to fly very high. And when we flew it, we had to have a Benz team on the ground, on standby, waiting for them to come down because when they came down, quite often, a large percentage of the time, they'd be bent. This is literally my worst nightmare, Ta talking about the pressure. <laughs> Don't be scared. I got you. Yeah, just pressure on things really stresses me out. You know a guy. It's okay. I know, I know. So clarification about the suits, because you were talking about the different levels of pressure. So these different suits, they make your body feel like the normal pressure that we're at in everyday life, and some are a different pressure than everyday life? Because you were talking about different numbers. Right. So the International Space Station is at 14.7 pounds per square inch, which is what we're at right now. So it's pressurized to make you feel like you're at home, only you're weightless because you're constantly falling, right? So that's the only difference with that. When you get into the Russian spacesuit, that is pressurized to nine PSI, which is, you know, nine PSI is like five PSI less than 14.7, give or take, right? So you're looking at five PSI less. And then our suit is 4.3 PSI, which is like 10 PSI less. So you have to decompress to get into our suit, but not into the Russian suit. And you said the benefits of that are that you can move more? Yeah, it's trade space, right? So if you put your hand out in front of you and you try to move it, you realize there's no pressure on your hand. Well, now put on the end of your fingertip, hold your palm straight up on the end of your fingertip. Now try and curl when you have a 10-pound weight on the tip of your finger and try and do a curl. Well, you can't. Why? Because, man, or you maybe you're able to do it, but you're not able to do it 100 times, which, you know, when you're working. So they went up and they repaired the Hubble Space Telescope. 
And what they did was they chose a whole bunch of tall, lanky people with long fingers who were very dexterous, who were able to do stuff. They picked a bunch of surgeons to do all the repair on the on the Hubble Space Telescope. Why? They, they have great dexterity, right? They have great manipulation of their fingers and, and they, can, they can work things and they have strength in their fingers because they do it all the time. So yeah, they needed to be, you need to be as close to the pressure that you're working in, which in this case was the vacuum of space or zero pounds per square inch. And then each movement you make is only with 4.3 pounds per square inch, and that's that's the difference in the pressure inside the suit and outside the suit. Does that make sense? The thing I'm confused about is, so if you're experiencing the pressure within the suit, why does it matter what the pressure is outside of the suit? Well, because it's all about the change in pressure. In the International Space Station, it's 14.7 pounds per square inch. Some of the International Space Station is little more than a blow-up doll. I mean, it, it's, it's basically a plastic section that you just inflate with air, and then you can live in that. But it becomes really rigid on the outside. Why? Because there's zero pounds per square inch on the outside, and there's 14 pounds per square inch on the inside. So it's like blown up, and now it's rigid. So in order for us to crush that, we'd have to be able to push 14.7 pounds per square inch on the inside, and, and we can't. It's, it's, it's one of those physical human things that's hard, you know? Hi, friends. Do you want to come hang out with me and Dave Asprey and so many other guests I've had on the show? You simply must come to the 10th annual biohacking conference, May 30th through June 1st in Dallas, Texas. And of course, I have a massive discount code for you guys. I went last year to the one in Orlando and it was one of the most fun times of my entire life. I met and got to hang out with so many guests that I've had on the show. I met so many of you guys. And of course, there's lots of Danger Coffee and Dave Asprey approved meals and dry farm wines. And that's just the social aspect. The conference itself is mind-blowing. They have this incredible expo where they have all the biohacking supplements, all the biohacking things. You can learn about them, try samples meet the creators and founders. If you haven't tried a lot of biohacking things, it's a great chance to actually try them out in person. Things like brain tap, infrared sauna, hyperbaric oxygen chambers, and so much more. There are so many incredible speakers as well. You can hear talks from people I've had on the show like Paul Saladino, Dr. Daniel Amen, Dr. Sarah Gottfried, Dr. Mercola, Dr. Anna Kabeka, and that is just a few of them. I seriously had the time of my life last year, and I would love to hang out with you guys. And you can get 35% off tickets. Just go to melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference and use the coupon code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. That's melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference with the code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. This code can be used for general admission or for VIP access. Seating is limited. They do sell out. They sold out last year. So get your ticket now. And if you come, definitely let me know because I want to meet you. So hopefully see you guys in Dallas. MelanieAvalon.com slash biohacking conference with coupon code BCMelanie. Get your tickets now. I'll see you guys there. And the interesting thing, and this is what I didn't realize before I tried the hyperbarics myself, is that once you reach a different pressure, you don't really perceive it as a different pressure. Is it like a thing like with boiling a frog? Like, could you get up to a certain pressure that would kill you and you wouldn't feel it if you went slow enough? So I've never boiled a frog. I just want to say that for the record. 
<laughs> your, your listeners will be like, who is this clown? And why is he boiling frogs? <laughs> Let me clarify, just for listeners who aren't familiar. They say if you boil a frog like slowly enough, it won't realize that if you slowly increase the temperature of the water, that it won't perceive the temperature. Would that happen with pressure? So, yeah, no. Mammalian tolerance or human tolerance, as the case is, is 2265, 2265 feet. You can't go any deeper than that. We've tried, you know, I think the French just set that record recently. Maybe it's like, it's a little deeper than that, but 2000 feet, in excess of 2000 feet, you know, to do, to do that kind of a dive. But you're really, the problem is from a life support systems perspective, there's lots of gas laws that are affecting you and you're absorbing inert gas and you're really, you're lethargic. So realistically, humans can't really work at, out, at depths deeper than about a thousand feet. So you can't work at a depth deeper than a thousand feet. You can go to that depth, but that's about it. So what would happen if you went deeper, I guess, is the question. You'd pass out and that's basically it. You, your 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 system would be so repressed, so suppressed, you wouldn't really be functioning well. Doesn't mean that you can't do it, but you know, you just wouldn't function. Okay, well, I will not do that. Well, I mean, two thousand feet of seawater is deep. I, I can't even imagine. Okay, so back to the, the actual hyperbarics. So it sounds like so the original intention was to you know mitigate the damage that these divers were experiencing with the pressure. How does hyperbaric oxygen therapy work? And what are the benefits when you're not tackling something like undoing the effects of the bends and pressure that you've experienced? Sure. The thing with hyperbaric oxygen therapy is, like I said, the first and only approved indication was was diving, right? So you're trying to fix people that dive. And then you're like, well, what, how, how else can we use this? Like I said, in 1664, Henshaw used it and he saw all these great things happening. And it's like, well, what else could we use it for? What else can we start thinking through? And, and that's where all the science started to come in. So people, we have found different mechanisms of action. And these mechanisms of actions are, are very, very simple, right? We know that hyperoxygenation, hyper being too much oxygen or more, hyper, more oxygenation, oxygen. So hyperoxygen, when you're in a hyperbaric chamber and you're at at least two, if not three partial pressures of oxygen, right? So three times 100% oxygen on the surface, you can transport a significant amount of oxygen through your plasma. Sufficient enough. So normally hemoglobin transports oxygen, right? So in hemoglobin in the grand scheme of things is big and plasma in the grand scheme of things is small. So if I can carry enough oxygen in my plasma to support cellular respiration, well then I can fix things that are poorly perfused areas. So with that, that's the first mechanism of action, and that's why it works to help heal decompression sickness. And then after that, we go into lots of other stuff. Like we reduce the bubble size by increasing the pressure, and that just makes sense, right? Like if you have a bubble, you can push on the outside of it, i.e., decrease increase the pressure, and you can reduce that size. It could reduce lipid peroxidation. It it stems vasoconstriction, which also reduces the inflammation in your body. It's got a toxin inhibition that comes with it. There's some antibiotic synergy that comes with it, this process known as angiogenesis, fibroblast proliferation, including collagen synthesis. So this is the 
collagen's the building block of everything in our body, right? So everybody thinks, oh, I want to go to a store and I want to get a collagen injection. I want to go whatever. I want to take collagen and then I can have a prettier face. It's not just that. Everything in your body is built on collagen. So when you cut yourself open before surgery, you get hyperbarics, you heal 40% faster with a 30% reduction in infection rate. The other thing that it does is it boosts stem cell production. CD34 plus progenitor stem cells are increased by 800 times in, in 20 oxygen treatments. It's like, I mean, and those are the wild card of all stem cells. Everybody wants stem cells, but most of them that you get from like a PRP, you know, platelet spin down, the, all those are like, they don't get uptaked into the body because your body looks at it and goes, oh my God, intruder alert. I want to get rid of most of that. So it tries to get rid of half of it. Well, when your body makes it, it doesn't try and get rid of it, you know? So you can use all that CD34+, plus, which are the wild card of all stem cells. They're like the gold card, you know? They're the whatever. They're the best thing to have in your body for healing, so. So are the benefits coming from the pressure or from the pressure increasing the oxygen concentration in the blood? So all the benefits come from the pressure and Henry's law and having to do with absorption. And you're pushing this oxygen into solution because the hemoglobin, while they can carry a little bit more, they're not going to carry a substantial amount. In in uh, 1930s or so, 1950s, there was a paper written called Life Without Blood. And what they did was they pressurized a whole bunch of pigs down to three atmospheres, which is three times the pressure that we're at right now, right? So three atmospheres absolute gave them 100% pure oxygen, removed all of their red blood cells and re-infused re their circulatory system with a plasma of sorts. And that plasma was sufficient enough to transport oxygen for them to be alive. And then we started doing open heart surgery at pressure. This is what was happening in the 50s, right? And I mean, you know, we exsanguinate all these pigs and then we see, oh gosh, oxygen can be great. And then we bring them back to, you know, bring them back to the surface, re-infuse them with their own blood and they live happily ever after. And we're going, wait, this stuff really works. Holy mackerel. So the pigs basically weren't breathing any oxygen, but they were still being oxygenated from the pressure? No, they were breathing oxygen. So basically they were breathing in and out and their, their fluid in their circulatory system was replaced instead of having hemoglobin, it had just plasma. Oh, okay. They didn't have any hemoglobin. Okay. No hemoglobin. They exsanguinated them, basically. And when they did so, I mean, you had to see the picture is pretty, pretty gruesome. You could look it up, but uh, it's, they're very pale and ashen. You know, you look at them and you go, oh my God, that pig's dead. And sure enough, they reinfused it and it was okay. Wow. Okay. So like if a person had anemia. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So anemia can be fixed. But see, so, so this is where I kind of go into it. Look, we can fix anemia, but what caused the anemia? Right. If you're anemic because you you have a, a shortage of ability to produce hemoglobin, I can fix you short term, but I can't fix you long term. You have to walk around in a pressure suit. Exactly. Walk around in a pressure suit. What, but what this does is it fixes something called oxygen debt. And the oxygen debt that most people run around with, people in poor health, smokers, those emphysema patients, they walk around in this, oh, the post-COVID people, they walk around in oxygen debt. Your body has great compensatory mechanisms. Your listeners probably know all this because they, they beat themselves up on a daily basis and then they repair themselves. They beat themselves up, then they repair themselves. I mean, it's what our body does, right? I mean, it's, it's that whole, uh, I want to break the muscle down, I want to build the muscle up. Same general principle, 
when you are looking to hyperoxygenate something, you're, you're looking to find the real reason for it. Like I said, that anemia is the underlying problem with the oxygen debt gives you a, it basically gives you like this, this, you're walking around in a debt for days. And this is why people are have, they have lethargy, they have brain fog, uh, you know, they're nauseous, they have an inability to take a full breath, you know, dyspnea. And, and, and we're helping this oxygen debt by paying back that oxygen debt. Your body can run for a little while, even when it's in an oxygen debt, but you got to pay it off at some point. And that is what we can help do. So, so when you're in the chamber, you breathe 100% oxygen? So there's two types of chambers. Well, there's three types of chambers, but there, there are mild hyperbaric oxygen therapy chambers, which are basically flexible and they would be on the floor in maybe somebody's office. They're not, they're not hard shell chambers. And then there are hard shell chambers. There are other kinds, veterinary chambers and so forth and so on. I don't want to go into those because I don't think your audience is there. But you know, with respect to these, there are two separate kinds. You're looking for a hard chamber. Why? Because all the math, all the science, all the papers that were written were all written on the science that happens inside the hard chambers. When I say hard chambers, these are all at two times the pressure or three times the pressure that we're at right now. The soft chambers, they can only go to like 1.1 or 1.2 times the pressure we're at right now. So what I continually go after them at is I said, listen, where's the science behind what you're doing in the soft chamber? Because it can only go to like one point, you know, you're basically breathing effectively 117% oxygen. So why are we doing that? What's the real benefit there? So that's where I'm kind of, I'm, I'm looking for the science. And look, <laughs> science wins over BS every time, right? That's at least what I say. I don't throw out the laws of physics because they always apply. Will it carry a little more oxygen in the plasma when you're at 117% oxygen as opposed to when you're at almost 300% oxygen? Yeah, but how much more? The one I did was a soft chamber. Sad face, <laughs> I need to go find. No, 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 no. The, here's the good news that... When you're in my, if you can get in a soft chamber, you can get in my chamber and come down here and do a podcast from inside my chamber. It is clear acrylic. You'll look through it. And I'm telling you, people will sit up halfway through the treatment, like they're talking to me and forget that there's something over their head because you really can't see through it. I mean, you can see completely through it. You really can't, you can't see that it's there, right? Because there's nothing there, right? And I mean, they hit the head on the chamber like, wait, don't, don't, bunk. <laughs> okay. And then they go, damn it. I totally forgot that was there. <laughs> it's doable. So since it does go to the higher pressure, does it feel any different? Nope. Yeah. That just kind of blew my mind. The fact that you don't, you know, realize it, you don't feel it for the hard chamber. How long does it take to pressurize to like bring you up to that pressure? So I take it nice and slow. When I take my patients down, I'll take them in a uh, curvilinear descent or a very it's very, very slow at first and then faster as you get deeper. It prevents any problem with middle ear barotrauma, which, by the way, is the most common problem in pressurizing in chambers. So I try and prevent middle ear barotrauma. It takes me 10 minutes to get to depth. I go real slow. Okay, 10 minutes. Okay. Are airplanes pressurized to what we normally experience or are they pressured different? Interestingly enough, airplanes, the Boeing 767 Dreamliner, which is the only one that I have the numbers off the top of my head at, the Boeing 767 Dreamliner is pressurized to 11.06 pounds per square inch. So about 11 pounds per square inch, right? And we're at 14 something, right? And we're at 14.7. So that's why your ears kind of pop as you go up. 
And then when you come down, you have to put your finger. This is why babies cry on airplanes, right? Because their their ears are all jacked up and they don't know what's going on, right? So if their mom gives them a bottle on the way down, they can kind of sort of work that out, right? They stretch their eustachian tube. They kind of clear a little bit. They get rid of that inner ear problem or the middle ear problem, as the case may be. But you notice that it's only pressurized to about 8,000 feet, which is about 11 PSI. But they fly at 35,000 feet. So technically, a plane is a hyperbaric chamber. Because at 35,000 feet, it would be less than a half an atmosphere. And when you pressurize it or can pressurize it to 8,000 feet, which is about 11 PSI, you know, so you go from about 7 PSI if you're at 35,000 feet all the way to 11 PSI, a plane is a hyperbaric chamber. It's a hyperbaric chamber, but like less pressure compared to hyperbaric therapy where it's more pressure. Exactly. Exactly. But it's less pressure than it's at because it's flying at 35,000 feet. Yeah. It's pressurized to feel like it's flying at 8,000 feet. See what I'm saying? So they pressure, they increase the pressure inside the plane. So it's more pressure than the outside. Okay. I understand. That's exactly right. More pressure than the outside. It's less pressure than when we're at sea level. So when the plane is going up, is that when the pressurizing is happening? And is it slowly happening? Yep. So it's slowly happening the entire time as you ascend, right? You go over 8,000 feet, it continues to pressurize, pressurize, pressurize. Actually, truly, it starts before that, but because it takes time for that to build up. And, you know, airplanes are kind of leaky, you know, they're held together with pop rivets and stuff like that. So, you know, but, but, but they're not made to be completely pressure proof. They leak a little bit. So the turbine engine devotes a small amount of that air to compress that air so that it goes in and pressurizes. And then it also goes into the engine so that it can efficiently, efficiently combust while it's in the engine. Otherwise, I mean, when you're at 35,000 feet, not a lot of combustion happens at 35,000 feet, but we need the airplane to fly. So we have to pressurize that air so that it can be combustible. Is our baseline pressure related to what we experience every single day. And let me clarify, like what I mean by that is, so when we're up in that plane and we're at a pressure that is higher than the pressure outside, but lower than the pressure when we're down below, is our body experiencing more or less pressure? Like where's the baseline? Is it comparing it to outside the plane? No. So your body's at less pressure and it feels like it's, your body only feels the pressure that it's at right now. So here I am flying in a plane and I'm at 35,000 feet. That cabin is pressurized. It feels like I'm at 8,000 feet above sea level, which is about 11 PSI or pounds per square inch, which is only about three PSI less than we're at right now, three or four PSI less than we're at right now, right? So it compares to the PSI, the baseline that you came from, which was on the ground. Exactly. Interesting. When you're in Colorado, you're at 5,000 feet when you start. <laughs> you knew you were going there, weren't you? <laughs> I love it. I love it. How long would it take for your body to have a new baseline? Yeah. So this is exactly why your, your athletes that are listening to this show probably train in a hypoxic environment because after a period of a couple of days, you can acclimate to an altitude. And this is your body's compensatory mechanism, right? Your body makes more hemoglobin to transport the basically less pressurized oxygen when you're at 5,000 feet. This is why we got those climbers that are climbing Mount Everest. They go to base camp, you know, which is arguably 14,000, 15,000 feet at base camp. And here they are acclimating for weeks 
trying to get your body to build up more red blood cells so that you can increase the oxygen carrying capacity throughout the entire body. But that's the compensatory mechanism. This is why we can live at 8, 10, 12,000 feet and, and get away with it because our body compensates for it. Oh, so the reason that you build more oxygen capacity at higher altitudes is because you have to, because you don't have the pressure that's like when you're at lower altitude. Exactly. Because there's effectively less oxygen, right? I mean, this is why athletes go and train so that they get that extra heat. I mean, this is blood doping. I mean, I'm, I'm dumbing it down, but yeah, this is blood doping. No joke. <laughs> if you were in a pressurized chamber, not breathing pure oxygen, would you still get oxygenated from the pressure alone? A little bit, yes, but because there's, you know, effectively, if you're at two atmospheres, which is in this case, 33 feet of seawater or double the pressure that we're at right now, you could pressurize to two atmospheres. You would effectively be carrying 21% oxygen on the surface. That's what's in air, basically 20.8, but 21. You'd be carrying 42% oxygen because it's double the amount of oxygen. With the chambers themselves, so the one I did, the soft shell, you wore a mask to breathe in the oxygen. What's the difference between that and the chambers that are pressurized with actual oxygen? So pressurizing with oxygen and breathing oxygen, it makes no difference. So if you breathe, so oxygen is classified as a, uh, a drug by the USP, right? And it's dosed in liters per minute, but it has to be inspired. You can't just pull oxygen around your body and try and breathe it in through your body. There's a little bit of absorption that comes through your body, but not enough to support cellular respiration. So when you breathe in oxygen, and I'm talking breathing in 100% oxygen, not a mixture of compressed air that is oxygen, and that's the problem with the soft chambers. They only get you about 80% or 90% pure O2 coming in those. So it's it's not even as effective as 100% oxygen would be with that pressure too. So, you know, it's kind of a kind of a problem there. But yeah, if if you're breathing 100% oxygen, the effect is, you know, the effect is the effect. So, that makes sense? Yeah, it, yes it does. I was suspicious of that when I was in the soft chamber. Yeah, because that mask probably didn't seal very well. She told me it didn't matter if it wasn't completely sealed. And I was like, this just doesn't make sense to me. No, that matters a hundred percent. It's physics. It has to work. This is what I love. It's like, oh, it's just physics. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> really random question. You were talking about the planes being leaky. Why do balloons pop? Ah, great question. So it's the general gas law, right? Pressure times volume divided by temperature equals pressure times volume by, divided by temperature, right? As you ascend, as you get up in the air, basically, that gas, because pressure, if we fix temperature, pressure and volume are inversely proportional. One goes up, the other has to go down. One goes down, the other has to go up, right? So what we have is a balloon there's less pressure on the balloon the more you go up, right? So if I'm here at the surface, I'm holding my hands around the balloon and I basically have a balloon that's the size of your head, right? So I'm holding my hands on a balloon that's the size of your head. If I go to half an atmosphere, that is half the pressure, that balloon will be twice the size, right? Because 
pressure and volume are inversely proportional given a fixed temperature, right? And, and you, you know, you have to fix temperature in some kind. You have to fix something in these laws. So what happens is we have the expansion of things. So the expansion of things will cause that balloon to wind up bursting at a certain, you know, you have to do the structural integrity of a balloon at, you know, some altitude or whatever, but yeah, that's exactly it. Hi, friends. One of the most valuable things that I do every single night of my life is my infrared sauna session. The brand that I use is Sunlighten. I did a lot of research on infrared saunas before deciding on them. Their saunas are so high quality. They're low EMF. And what I really love is they have a solo unit. That's what I have. And it's really great if you live in a small apartment, might be moving. It's just really an amazing investment. And they have incredible deals and offers on it right now. You can actually get up to $200 off with the code Melanie Avalon, or if you're talking to a rep, just tell them that I sent you. And like I said, that will be up to $200 off and that will also get you $99 shipping. Normally the shipping is like $600. So that's a really, really big deal. And if you do purchase a sauna, forward your proof of purchase to podcast at melanieavalon.com. And I will also send you a signed copy of my book, What, When, Why. If you'd like to learn more about the science of sauna, Two resources. I interviewed the founder of Sunlighten, Connie Zach. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And then I also recently did an epic blog post all about the science of sauna. We'll also put that in the show notes. All right, now back to the show. Man, now I wish I want to go back to college. I want to like study this. Don't do it. Don't do it. I did it when I was 48. Now it's like I hated it. I wish I understood. This is a very esoteric question, but like the gas laws and volume and pressure and temperature, is this something that only exists within our reality, like like quantum physics and stuff? Could it be different? I love it. Uh, let me brag on my middle daughter for just a half a second. She's a physics major at Caltech on a full ride. So she's freaking brilliant. She'd probably be able to answer that question on quantum physics better than I. Given the current laws that we understand at this moment in time, and I say that all the time because we are learning stuff that uh, it blows my mind. When I talk about quantum singularity or I start thinking about quantum singularity, which sadly is what I do at like, you know, like four o'clock in the morning when I'm wide awake looking at the ceiling, right? I'm like, I'm like, I wonder if there's a universal constant that the- <laughs> I'm an insomniac. You can text me next time. We can talk about it at 4 a.m. <laughs> this is why Kirk's trying to get me to sleep. He's like, you need to sleep, idiot. <laughs> Given what we know right now, these laws are what we, you know, this is like the guiding principles of our universe are the, are the laws, right? These are, these are the laws of physics. So you can't break those laws. Right now, it's what we know. Now, are there ways around it? Sure. We, we're smart enough to think of ways around it, but maybe not me. <laughs> maybe there's somebody else smarter. I feel like this is a Star Trek episode here. Okay. So, so back to the, the hyperbaric oxygen treatment, who should do it? Should you do it more likely if you're addressing certain conditions or can anybody benefit from it? And then, yeah. So who should do it? Great question. So there are 14 approved indications by the approving authority, right? And basically that's you know, arterial gas embolism, anemia, you know, arterial insufficiencies, carbon monoxide poisoning, blah, 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 blah. All these boring things, intracranial abscesses, you know, thermal burns, all of those are pretty lockstep. And most providers think, yeah, this is, this is good juju. We want to make sure that we give people hyperbarics because this is something that we, you know, we, we know, and it's very tried and true, if you know what I mean, right? 
Then there's a whole host of what we call off-label indications. And I want to talk about the difference between off-label and on-label. So off-label indications are things that something is not approved for, which means that CMS or the Center for Medicare Medicaid Services will not pay for them. But that doesn't mean that they don't work, right? So there are plenty of people who are, you, you know, look, for instance, Viagra. Viagra was designed as a cardiac drug. And all of a sudden, we found out it's a smooth muscle mediator. And oh my gosh, people were maintaining erections for long periods of time. Wow, this could be used off-label for erectile dysfunction. Holy mackerel. So, so we use drugs off-label all the time. And like I said, USP has classified this oxygen as a drug, which, by the way, kills me because it's like a naturally occurring element. How do we, <laughs> how do we classify it as a drug? It makes me insane. But I mean... Off-label indications, autism, multiple sclerosis, cerebral palsy, stroke, migraines, traumatic brain injury, Lyme disease, drowning, fibromyalgia. I mean, I could go on and on and on. There's like 30 or 40 indications. Now, some of them, it makes sense. Some of them, people are just looking for a cure, right? People are looking for a cure for their child who has multiple sclerosis. It Does it work, doc? And I'm like, I don't know is the answer. The, the jury's half out. It's really hard because, you know, cerebral palsy and multiple sclerosis, even autism, they're really hard to get objective quality evidence behind them to, you know, because what mom says, well, I think he talks more. Well, that I think and talks or you know, I need something objective. I need a cerebral blood flow brain scan so that I can prove beyond the shadow of a doubt that we increase CBF to the point where this person now had these, you know, outcomes that I can measure, you know? Speaking of oxygen as a drug, is there the potential for oxygen toxicity? Absolutely. There is definitely a potential. There, You can't get something, you know, good without having some possibility of something bad. So yes, central nervous system oxygen toxicity, there are two types of oxygen toxicity. Central nervous system, which has the the uh, manifestation of convulsions, visual disturbances, hearing disturbances, nausea, euphoria, twitching, tingling, irritability, and dizziness. Now, most of those are pretty innocuous. Who cares if you're a little dizzy? Who cares if you're a little nauseous? It's not a big deal. Tingling, twitching, no big. But a convulsion, a full-on convulsion, that's that's some serious stuff. I mean, so, so we want to try and avoid that. Generally speaking, human tolerance goes up to 3.0 PO2 or the effect of breathing 300% oxygen. We like to keep treatments a little lower. We like to keep them on the 2.0 side unless there's something really, really wrong with you. Like, for instance, if you have carbon monoxide poisoning, the, you know, you, you happen, uh, the, the byproduct of burning any petroleum product, if you will, uh, that carbon monoxide buildup, it bonds more readily to your hemoglobin and you, you could die. It has a six and a half hour life in, in air, right? It has a 23 minute half-life in 100% oxygen at three atmospheres. So this is a life-saving measure in that case, right? So we go all the way up to 3.0 or the effect of breathing 300% oxygen. Now, let me talk to you about the statistical probability of central nervous system oxygen toxicity with all the other comorbidities involved. And I'm talking the poorly perfused, the diabetic ulcer, the, the emphysema with you know CO2 retention, all these, all these things that are involved in, in selecting patients, if you will, the worst of the worst, the statistical probability is one in 10,000. You know, it's a 
2% chance of getting it. And, and so I'm laughing, but let, let me just give you a for instance. So with none of the other comorbidities, like if you're basically what we call a walkie-talkie, like you're a person that can walk around and talk pretty readily and you generally speaking are in good health, you have a one in 50,000 chance of getting central nervous system oxygen toxicity. So one in 36,000 is the chance of you getting four white balls with no Powerball. <laughs> so, so, and people don't even get that. Like, I've never got that many. No, like, I might get one number on the, power on the lotto. So, you know, think about that the next time you're worried about central nervous system oxygen toxicity. But the other one is pulmonary oxygen toxicity. And that is, you know, it builds up over time. And when you're getting treatments over a long period of time, you could have reduced vital capacity, substernal irritation, pain on inspiration, and a dry, scratchy cough. That is common, you know, but realistically, it's a 4% reduction in vital capacity. So if you take a couple of days off, which is why we only treat Monday to Friday, we generally speaking don't treat on the weekends unless it's an emergency. I never tested for it, so I can't confirm that I had it, but I'm pretty sure I had carbon monoxide poisoning. I was in an apartment and I was using the oven every night and I felt so sick in that apartment. And then finally the, I had the gas company come and they had to shut it off. They were like, this has been leaking. And that apartment had black mold. Fun times. Oh, oh, let me tell you what, by the way, hashtag mold toxicity is something we treat in here because there's an antitoxin effect of the oxygen that, that I'm telling you, the, the physician that I have is sold on this is, this is the cure for the mold toxicity thing. So, Does it do that by increasing like reactive oxygen species temporarily? Yeah, we, we do increase reactive oxygen species, but it's a necessary evil. But yeah, so, so you wind up working through the toxicity. Like I said, there's an antitoxin sort of effect. Uh, same thing with carbon monoxide poisoning and mold toxicity. It's the same apparent mechanism of action. Now, mind you, there, isn't, there are only a couple of peer-reviewed papers on mold toxicity, but it's, it's pretty well good. <laughs> I mean, the results are good, you know, and it, even if you only help 50% of the people, is that good enough? I don't know, you know. Look, the Center for Medicare Medicaid Services, the problem with them is they can't approve every indication, even if the science supports it. If they do, there's just no money behind it. So they go, oh, well, there's no money. So therefore, we're not going to be able to, you know, we're not going to be able to do that. That's really encouraging, though, because I feel like mold toxicity is, you know, such an insidious thing that is really hard for people to find treatments for that work. Yeah. I mean, Crohn's, ulcerative colitis vascular dementia, you know. Is there anything that you recommend stacking like supplement wise while doing it? And like what would happen if you took like aspirin, which is a blood thinner? How would that affect things? So with respect to that, aspirin would probably increase the perfusion because it's going to make it thinner. You decrease the viscosity, you increase the perfusion. That kind of sort of makes sense to me. And this is actually what I teach at the university. So I, I teach blood flow in the human body. So uh, when, you know, when I teach this stuff, this is where the physicians go, wait, hold on a second. That's not the way it works. And I'm like, actually, that's exactly the way it works. <laughs> so as you're looking at this, I would say, remember, I'm a PhD, not an MD. So I don't have a medical opinion. I just have a, an opinion, right? <laughs> I would say the first thing you need to do is prep the mitochondria. 
So because the mitochondria is that adenosine triphosphate, adenosine diphosphate, up, down, up, down, you know, we, we, we need the mitochondria to be healthy. Once the mitochondria are healthy, we can do this whole oxygen uptake thing, right? We can do this whole cellular respiration thing more efficiently. Short of that, I, I worked with a whole bunch of physiologists in the very beginning of my Navy days. And when I'm working with these guys, they're like, listen, don't waste your time on changing small variables like whether or not. I'm going to get antioxidants in my body. Don't worry about that. You're going to do an inch of change for going down the road two miles. It's like, so you go two miles and one inch. Okay, I got you. You know what I'm saying? So go with the thing that's the prime mover. Go with the thing that helps you the most. So, Would that be like diet and lifestyle compared to supplements? That would be where I would go is diet and lifestyle changes as opposed to supplements. I mean, look, I, people are like, <laughs> do you eat chocolate? Well, yeah, I eat chocolate. Of course I eat chocolate. Would you rather have dark chocolate or light chocolate? I don't know. <laughs> Whichever chocolate you have is probably the chocolate I'll take, you know, but uh, I, like I said, I don't put too much stock in the fact that, yes, I believe that dark chocolate is probably better for you and releases antioxidants and blueberries too, but you know, yeah, I'd, I'd do the lifestyle change first. That'll probably, uh, that'll probably help you. Good healthy habits is Joe's opinion, you know. Do you have thoughts on daily low-dose aspirin for health? Yeah, so depending on where you're at, I suggest that all my divers, any of my divers, and I'm not a doctor, but I'm not an MD, so I suggest that all my divers have that baby aspirin, that whatever, it's 81 milligrams, I think, you know, 81 milligram aspirin because it increases or it decreases. It thins your blood, basically. So yeah, it's a, it's a good thing when you're in this situation. So should you continually moderate that? No. Should you be on, you know, a small dose of aspirin all the time? No. I mean, you know, I don't do a lot of, I, I had to teach my kids uh, some sort of religion, if you will. And, and what, I, what I wound up teaching them was this whole thing about balance. I'm like, listen, my opinion is that everything should be in balance. Then there's family, consideration of others, all that kind of stuff. But all that has to be in balance, right? So e even a baby aspirin every day? No, I don't do anything every day. You know, so balance, right? If you always take it, then your blood will kind of go back to the level that it was before because it'll increase viscosity in some other way. You know what I'm saying? So, so like everything has to be in balance, you know, and if you stop that production ability for your body to decrease the viscosity, then your body will no longer be able to do that. So second and third order consequences, you'll, you'll pull yourself in a direction where possibly you would not like where you want to be. Okay. I'm haunted by this question. Oh gosh, really? Yes. I just don't know if I should be taking daily low dose aspirin or not. I ask everybody who I think might have some knowledge about this, this question, and you really would have knowledge because your expertise. So. Well, <laughs> I hope that I'm helping. <laughs> Most of the time, the questions really don't have an answer. I mean, it's like, I don't know is the answer. Oh goodness. You know, story of my life. Another question about the the gases. Have you read Breathe? Wim Hof? James Nestor. No, I have not read. I love Wim Hof. Yeah, me too. Me too. Did I tell you I had him on the show? No. Oh my gosh. Oh, that would have been freaking epic to meet him. <laughs> Honestly, I mean this. Out of all the conversations I've had in my entire life, it was the most inspiring conversation I've ever had. That guy's incredible. He's insane. And his book is amazing. Do you do his Wim Hof method? I do. I do. 
I do, and I love it. Yeah, daily? Daily. I don't do anything daily, unfortunately, but uh, yeah. <laughs> but I believe there's significant benefit in that, and I have, you know, this whole mind control, body control thing, there's a lot to that. I believe that there is a ton to that, and we're just cracking the code on this now. I mean, yeah. Yeah, the studies on his work are really, really incredible. I love it. For listeners, I'll put a link in the show notes to that episode. I've started doing cryotherapy as well. Do you do that? So I don't do cryo. I, I'm an ice bath kind of a guy. Okay. Yeah. I haven't done an ice bath actually. Oh my God. Me, 40 pounds of ice and 22 minutes. Oh, wow. Oh yeah. You have to build up to 22 minutes, but Dr. Parsley Kirk will do, you know, he'll do 30, 40 minutes. He's like, yeah, no problem. I'm like, you're insane, man. <laughs> but when you think about it, it is all about perfusion, right? So what happens when when you ice when you ice things? You know, you decrease the blood flow to them, right? And then when you get out and you get right in the hot water, what do you do? You increase the blood flow, so you're changing the perfusion, right? And you're rapidly infusing, and then you're rapidly reversing it, and then you're rapidly infusing, and then you're rapidly reversing it. So all that healing power that comes from that inrush of oxygenated blood is like, huh. It gets it gets through the poorly perfused spots, so it is is an epic form of doing things. Now, I don't know. I've I've heard people that stand in those cold cold things, and they it doesn't do any good for them. I've never done it, so I couldn't even tell you whether it's good or not. I will just say I am so addicted now. It makes me feel so good, like so good. And I do three minutes at negative two twenty, and then I walk out and I just feel like amazing. Really? Yeah. I mean, look, as far as I'm concerned, if it's a placebo and it works, by goodness, it works. <laughs> I don't care. Or if it does something, then great. Uh, I'm, I'm all for things that help you, whether it's just, hey, I took a sugar pill and I feel dynamite. <laughs> With the ice bath, do you alternate? Do you go to like a sauna and the ice bath? So I'll do it twice. I'll do ra uh, rapid cold, sit in it for 22 minutes, get up, Go take a hot bath, a hot shower, and then wait till my body back, uh, you know, gets to be the point where it's hot again, and then I will dump right back in, which is really freaking hard to go right back in. I, as a matter of fact, I use Wim Hof when I'm in the ice bath because I'm like, <laughs> I'm, I'm like, where's that stuff heating me up now, Wim? <laughs> oh my gosh. He's amazing. I remember the first time I ever tried his method, I was just shocked by how long I could hold my breath. I was like, what is happening? I was like watching the clock and I was like, this is so easy. I'm so, I'm so confused. Right. Why, why is this so hard for people? Yeah. No, good stuff. James Nestor, it's all about breathing. And I had him on the show as well, but he, he talks a lot about oxygen versus carbon dioxide. And he talks a lot about the benefits of carbon dioxide. Do you have thoughts on oxygen deprivation or excess carbon dioxide for health? So carbon dioxide, so I'm trying to think through the physiology and it. Carbon dioxide's a vasodilator. Oxygen's a vasoconstrictor. So they have an opposite effect. Oxygen would increase it would increase vasoconstriction, which will increase blood pressure and reduce the amount of oxygen delivered to your tissues. This is why you have to balance that thing. But carbon dioxide is a vasodilator, which will increase the amount of oxygen to the tissues. So, but once again, this is this is like 
this is like you're trying to needle this thing down and you're going to get an inch ahead when you're when you're actually moving a mile. So I would say that, you know, is there benefit in doing hypoxic training? That means less oxygen than 21%. So yeah, if you're doing hypoxic training, what does your body's compensatory mechanism do? It makes more red blood cells, which then increases your oxygen carrying capacity for your overall body. That makes sense. To me, carbon dioxide-based training doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but that doesn't mean that it's not right. Because Just because I haven't heard of it doesn't make it, you know, I'm at the, I'm at the end all be all on that. Trust me. Hi friends, I am so excited to tell you about something that I am obsessed with that can revolutionize your health, help with stress levels, support longevity, and really help you when you go out and are having a bit of wine or drinks or all the things. And I'm going to tell you how to get $100 off. So I've been talking about the role of NAD in our health for so long. NAD stands for nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide. It is a coenzyme that is involved in so many processes in our body, including energy production and DNA repair. And it is depleted by things like stress, aging, lack of sleep, alcohol, and of course, too much partying. In fact, a lot of researchers believe that declining NAD levels is one of the key factors in aging. That's why I have been really interested in boosting and supporting NAD levels. And I have tried all the things. You can take precursors to NAD called NR and NMN. I still take NMN. However, I am much more alert by directly giving your body NAD. And historically, the most common way to do that that is accessible to people was through NAD IVs and NAD shots. I actually never did an NAD IV for a few reasons. One, they are extraordinarily expensive. Two, I've been doing the shots, which I liked because they were easy to do. That said, they always made me feel a little bit unwell right afterwards. And I've heard that the IV makes a lot of people feel unwell. So if the shots were making me feel unwell and that was going into the muscle first as like a barrier, I can't even imagine what putting it straight into my bloodstream would have done. Plus with the IVs, you have to sit there for potentially hours. So basically IVs were a no-go for me. So like I said, I was doing the shots, but I was like, I wish there was an easier way to do this. Then a company called Ion Layer reached out to me Oh my goodness, friends, I am so obsessed. So they make transdermal NAD patches and they have studies showing that these patches actually boost your NAD levels. And what's so amazing is you put on a patch. It's super easy to put on. I have a video on my Instagram about how you do it. You basically get this patch thing with like a negative side and a positive side. You put saline on one side, you mix up the NAD with some sterile water and the NAD that they give you on the other side. Then you stick it to your arm or wherever you want to put it. You put a super cool black patch over over it, kind of like how you put the patches over CGMs. And then what's amazing is there are no side effects. You don't feel unwell from it and it lasts for 14 hours and it's so easy. You can do it at home and then you can really decide when you want to do it. So with the shots, I was doing them once a week and I was trying to do them before going out with this patch. Now I put on the patch before going out and it makes me feel so good. It really helps the next day from any alcohol recovery that you may need. And they look pretty awesome with my outfits. Not going to lie. I am obsessed with these patches. I just want everybody to know about them and they are so much more affordable than the shots or the IVs. If you want to boost your NAD levels, support anti-aging, help with your stress, help with lack of sleep, and or optimize your partying. You need these patches, friends. And I'm so excited because working with the company has been amazing and they are giving you guys $100 off, which is incredible. So to get that discount, just go to 
to melanieavalon.com slash ionlayer. That's I-O-N-L-A-Y-E-R and use the coupon code melanieavalon to get $100 off your first order. I cannot recommend these enough. I'm going to use them for the unforeseeable future, probably for the rest of my life. It's literally just become part of my arsenal now. Like when I'm getting ready to go out, usually once a week, put on my NAD patch. And even if I don't go out that week, I still like to do one once weekly. Oh, P.S. They're also amazing for traveling. You guys know I'm not a big traveler. I've been doing more traveling recently and I wear these on the plane there and back. Game changer. Although it's really fun at TSA, especially because I already opt out and don't go through the scanner thing. So they already are suspicious. And then they're like, what's that on your arm? And I'm like, it's NAD. And then they're like, what's that? And then I'm like, it's a coenzyme in your body that's involved in a lot of metabolic processes and energy production and DNA repair. And then they just look at me really weird, but it's fine. It's totally fine. So again, that's melanieavalon.com slash ion layer to get $100 off your ion layer kit. It comes with six patches, totally the way to go for boosting NAD levels. And I cannot recommend it enough. melanieavalon.com slash ion layer with the coupon code melanieavalon for $100 off. Well, I think the most fascinating thing I learned from his book is, have you heard about the studies they've done on phobias with carbon dioxide treatment? No. Oh my goodness. It blew my mind. So they can treat phobias with carbon dioxide. And and he, he talks about how he did it in the book. They just give you excess carbon dioxide and you still have normal oxygen, but for some reason you feel like you can't breathe with the carbon dioxide. And they use it to treat phobias because I guess... I don't know. He talks about the science of it. The acute exposure to that just complete panic does something to the body. I'll put a link in the show notes. It sounds really terrifying. So I took a quiz on my claustrophobia. The fun fact, there's two types of claustrophobia. Did you know this? No. So if you take a claustrophobia quiz to figure out what type you have, I have the form that's actually fear of suffocation. Like it's not what you think of with claustrophobia, it's fear of suffocation. So literally that carbon dioxide treatment sounds like the worst thing I could ever experience because you just feel like you're suffocating. That seems daunting to me, but look, man, I, like I said, there's a whole bunch in this life that I do not understand. It's fascinating. Okay. One more question about the hyperbarics. So actually doing the treatment, because you talked about doing it Monday through Friday and how you don't do it on the weekends. So if somebody is doing it for health or to treat something, what is the typical treatment protocol? Like, is there a, a dose, a, like a high dosing period in the beginning where you're doing it more or? No, no, it's not a high dosing period because like I said, oxygen's a, va- yeah, uh, oxygen's a vasoconstrictor. So the more oxygen you apply, the more your body's going to vasoconstrict and the more it's going to reduce the blood flow to the to the area. So it's, it's the life lesson is balance, right? Everything has to be in balance. So wait, let me back up. The data doesn't support that seven day a week habit. Now, the reason why some of these protocols are written and you asked me what the common protocol is, and I'll just tell you commonly people and things are treated between 2.0 and 2.4 partial pressure of oxygen or about 200 to 240% oxygen if you will so that's basically effectively being at 40 you know 33 to 45 feet of seawater give or take pressurized if you will but you're you're in a dry chamber so 
you can you can do that for between 60 and 90 minutes and generally speaking that cures most of the things that we have now traumatic brain injury PTSD those are being treated at far less you know 1.6 1.7 po2 or 160 170 partial pressure of oxygen but generally speaking everybody's treated around 2.0 we don't we don't dose load we don't do like a 54321 or anything like that unless there's something really acute wrong with you, carbon monoxide poisoning, we may treat you three times a day, then two times a day, then one time a day, but that's only to reduce the half-life of carbon monoxide. So generally speaking, that's the dosing and that's the dosage that we would be looking for in the general time. And how long do those sessions last? Oh, between 60 and 90 minutes. Okay. Is it something that you can continue for life or... How long do you do it for? So everybody had that picture of Michael Jackson in the hyperbaric chamber, and they said he sleeps in the hyperbaric chamber. So first of all, that never actually happened. What happened was, you're not old enough to remember him getting his hair caught on fire during the Pepsi commercial. He got his hair caught on fire, and then he got burned. Well, he was in Miami doing that shoot, so they sent him over to the Miami Burn Center, and they did such a good job with him at being burn victim. He decided to donate a ton of money. They opened up the Michael Jackson wing, uh, which put, you know, hyperbaric oxygen therapy in the burn unit. And he did a photo op of him laying in the chamber. And everybody was like, oh, he's sleeping in the chamber. This is why he looks like he's a child. No, that's not how it worked. <laughs> so now, did he do some some different things? Yeah, he did, but that wasn't the cause of all that problem. So can you stay in there forever? Sure, you can do anything, but what's Joe's first life lesson? Balance. So if you all of a sudden have all the oxygen that you need, you don't need any extra hemoglobin. What's that going to do? It's going to reduce the amount of hemoglobin production that you do. So your bone marrow is not going to need that. Maybe, you know, your bone marrow is not going to be able to produce that. And then when you come back into an air environment, you're going to be in a slightly hypoxic state. Why? Because you live in a state that's 100% oxygen at 2.0 PO2. You can have big problems long-term. Like I said, the pulmonary oxygen toxicity, reduced vital capacity, substernal irritation, pain on inspiration, and dry, scratchy cough. Those things will come after about a five days worth of treatment. And you'll be hearing the patient, you're treating the patient, and they're kind of wheezing a little bit like, and you know, it happens. But all of these protocols that we have designed, a researcher, I just want to keep your listeners to keep this in mind. The researcher sat in a room, came up with this protocol without any input, right? And I'll give you a perfect for instance. There was a for instance of a colonel who was doing this because the Air Force did a whole bunch of, of treatment protocol stuff. A colonel that was doing these treatments and a four-star general that was one of his patients that was going to do a study in how he got cured and got better using hyperbaric oxygen therapy. So the colonel came up with the protocol and said, listen, it's going to be two hours long. You're going to be in the chamber. It'll take you 10 minutes to get down, six minutes to get up. So that's uh, two hours and 16 minutes. I want to treat you seven days a week. And the general, the four-star general looks at him and goes, mm, no. So here's the way it's going to happen, Colonel. I'm only going to do this five days a week, Monday through Friday, because I'm not coming in on Saturday and Sunday. And then, oh, by the way, you're going to reduce that time down to about an hour and a half so that I can get out and catch the bus. The bus comes every two hours to come to this facility. And I am not going to wait around here for extra hours sitting here doing nothing when I have just missed the bus. Do you understand me, Colonel? And the Colonel went, yes, General, because that's what colonels say when generals tell them something. But that's that's how the protocol was made, and it turned out that it worked. Now, would it have worked if they did 
the seven day a week protocol, two hours, probably, but but who knows? That, that protocol came completely, you know. So yes, it's written in science, but it's not exact science. So And to clarify, you said five days a person might start experiencing these symptoms. Is that if the person is having issues and experiencing the symptoms, like will every person after five days experience that or just if they are having issues with it? No. So, so you may or may not experience those things. It depends. And individual susceptibilities vary on individual days. So you go back to the mechanism of action for the seizure, the, the convulsion, the hyperbaric oxygen convulsion. We still don't know what the true mechanism of action is. We think it's increased cerebral blood flow. And then we think it's something, well, we know it's something going on in the central nervous system because we have EEGs to prove it. So we see it's in the central nervous system. We see that it's happening. But all we know is that it seems to occur with a high amount of oxygen and a longer duration than shorter duration. You know, so it's like we think we know the ideology sort of, but really it's not pinpointed. So this is kind of one of those like could happen on a Tuesday, might happen on a Wednesday, might happen to you tomorrow, but will not happen to you today. You know, I ate an onion last night. Maybe that's got something to do with it. I have no idea, you know. So so I kind of sort of think like if you start change, this is why I recommend that people don't start changing around their physiology because for instance, uh, if if you break down the things that have to do with hyperbaric oxygen and you being able to stave off central nervous system oxygen toxicity, you find that like vitamin E is one of those things that makes you, it's prophylactic to central nervous system oxygen toxicity. But if you don't have enough of it, it makes you more likely to have oxygen toxicity. So it's like, wait a minute, wait a minute, you're messing with your vitamin E. I would not mess with my vitamin E levels. It's like, oh boy, in and out. I get really nervous with concentrated supplements like that or vitamins because I just don't feel like my conscious brain has more knowledge about what I need than my actual body. Like taking things naturally from food compared to giving it in concentrated form. Like I feel like my body can probably figure it out better. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, exactly. That's kind of why it's like, listen, just do whatever you do. People are like, should I be in ketosis? Because I heard that, you know, starvasis, starvation releases ketones and that seems like it's catabolic instead of anabolic. So maybe, yeah, okay. That, that might work. I'm like, no, don't mess with anything. If you're in, if you're in ketosis, be in ketosis and that's just fine. But if you're not, don't do it just for this decompression chamber treatment, you know? I interviewed Dave Asprey on this show, and he um, suggested getting your own at-home unit. How do you feel about that? The at-home units? He said, like, order your own unit and have it at your house and just do it yourself, and it would be cheaper. Is that okay? Is that dangerous? It's a ton cheaper. Is it okay? There's no science that says that it's okay, right? I mean, so basically what it is is the soft chambers or these home chambers or things like that, they wind up giving you about eh, ballpark. If you do the math, it winds up being about 120 or 117% oxygen. So it's like, and as this, is, this is my problem with the soft chambers. I'm like, A, where's your, you know, where's your research behind that? B, you know, you, you're going to say that 117% oxygen is statistically significantly better than 100% oxygen. Show me the paper. Show me, show me one paper. 
you know, show me something that's scientific peer reviewed, that's published literature that gives you, you know, and, and I'm not saying that physics doesn't apply. I'm sure there's more oxygen carrying capacity in 117% oxygen than there is in, you know, 100% oxygen, but how much more? Two-fifths of five-eighths of whatever? <laughs> no. And, and realistically, they're about $30,000 a piece. So if you had $30,000 and you want to go get hyperbaric treatments, I mean, I'm, I'm going to ballpark it here and I'm going to say that most treatment places for hard shell chambers are between $200 and $350 for a treatment. Even if you get, a, let's just put it right, you know, $250. Even if you get $250 treatments, I mean, you know, you can get a hundred treatments, <laughs> you know, I mean, what are we talking about here? You know, so I, I don't know. I, 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 I find that, you know, and, and anything like, here's my theory. When we treat people here at the clinic, I would like to treat you for X number of times and then you go away. And the only time I see you is when you bump into me at the mall and you go, Oh my God, doc, you guys did so great. I was perfect from that point on. Thank you very much. If, if some kind of thing that you're doing requires you to keep coming back for more, probably not doing what you think it's going to do, right? Because we're trying to help you, right? Or that what my, my MD says is address the bottom line. You know, like you can fix anemia, but if you're still anemic and you have a problem with, you know, hemoglobin production, you're going to be anemic and, and you haven't fixed the problem. You fixed your oxygen debt, but you haven't fixed the problem. So, you know the drill. So it sounds like for listeners, they want to seek out a hard unit at a clinic. Perfect. Is there anything that we didn't really touch on that you think is really important for listeners to know about all of this? Oh my gosh. Like 8 billion other things. I mean, so for instance, post-COVID long haulers, we're trying to get funding right, finish up the funding for a uh, study. Uh, university gave me a little bit of funding for a study in uh, post-COVID. What I found is that when you, when you have post-COVID, you have the lethargy, you have the nausea, you have the brain fog, and you have the reduced vital capacity. You can get in the hyperbaric chamber and, you know, about 10 treatments later, if you're at the right partial pressure of oxygen and everything, you can be treated and you can pay back that oxygen debt that COVID gave you. You can pay back that oxygen debt, reduce the brain fog and from a, now brain fog, something that I can't really quantify, right? But I can, I can quantify vital capacity, right? So I can use a measure called FEV1, force excretory volume. I can say that I increased your FEV1 from 60 something percent to 90 something percent. Wow, we did something with that. And I mean, that's what hyperbaric oxygen therapy does. We treated the flu of 1918 in hyperbaric chambers. We treat viral infections in hyperbaric chambers all the time, but it is not something that's common. So, you know, all these doctors are going, it's not standard of care. And I'm like, really, what's the standard of care for COVID? So just understand what the physics and physiology does. And, and, you know, like I said, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Maybe it'll work. Do you think this is something that will be more and more like available to people? Like, do you think it's on the rise? I opine that people are looking for a different answer, right? I don't know what your problem is, but it's not a pill that's going to fix you, right? So you got to give your body the opportunity to fix itself. How do you do that? 
you can do something naturopathic, natural. So I'm getting lots of calls, anti-aging calls, anemia calls, wellness calls, mold toxicity calls, addiction calls, ulcerative colitis and Crohn's. I mean, you know, and I'm like, look, I'll do a study on it. We'll see if it'll, we'll see if it'll work. It make kind of makes sense, you know, whatever. But yeah, I think it is on the rise. And as we, we make this break from, you know, Western medicine and, and a pill is your cure and farm, you know, <laughs> the pharmacist in- industry trying to lead us to something that is a little more health based, you know, that type thing. I think that we're going to be a lot better off. So that's my opinion. I think that uh, I think that it's on the rise. It's on the uptake. I have a super random question for you. I was just wondering if, especially after reading your kid's book, I'm just wondering what's like the craziest thing you've seen in your diving adventures in the ocean? Have you seen any sea monsters or like sunken ships or? Yeah. I mean, so, so one of the coolest dives I've ever done was on the Arizona. I got to, uh, as a, as a military officer, you get to reenlist a person. I did a really cool dive on the Arizona Memorial where we kneeled down lots of solemn, lots of prayer, you know, that kind of thing. And it was, you know, we, this is basically a gravesite, and you're on this thing and hands down, it was, it was a great experience because you felt like you bonded with these sailors that were down there. You did the reenlistment for the guy. That was a great thing but uh no i haven't seen a whole lot of stuff <laughs> you know i i did a uh did a bunch of time doing deep dives and you know you see you see interesting fish but yeah <laughs> I, fish don't thrill me <laughs> my ichthyologist friends yes they do but not me i just thought it was so cool how in the book you said i had never thought about this that the colors disappear in the order of the rainbow yeah oh so red orange yellow green blue indigo violet so by the time you get to like you know 70 80 feet everything basically looks the same. So it's like, it's all purplish bluish. That's why they call it the twilight zone, you know? So you go down there and it all looks like it's twilight. It's darker. It's kind of hard to see, you know, it's tough, you know? So you want to do some cool diving, go in the shallows and you will see lots of pretty colors and lots of pretty fishes. Perfect. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Well, this has been absolutely amazing and wonderful. I learned so much. My mind is blown. I have so many things I want to think about now. Well, pick up the phone and call me or, or, you know, I'll, I'll come back if you need me or want me or, you know, whatever. I'd love to, love to continue the education because, uh, because this is what I teach. I teach this course at the University of South Florida, or I teach a course in hyperbaric medicine at the University of South Florida Medical School, as well as the uh, biomedical engineering department. So, you know, we, we try and get this word out to the people, you know, so that we understand it. That's amazing. I feel like you'd be a really amazing professor. <laughs> You're like the cool professor. <laughs> I don't know about that. Oh my goodness. Well, so the last question I actually ask every single guest on this show, and it's just because I realize more and more each day how important mindset is surrounding everything. So what is something that you're grateful for? Oh my goodness. I absolutely lead a blessed life. I really do. I I stopped about um, eight, 10 years ago, and I started making a list of all the people that were positive influences in my life. And I mean, I'm talking like mentors and like, for instance, Kirk Parsley, he's one of them. I started making a list of all these people and I have so many people that were positive influences in my life. Like I'm just a kid from New York who grew up in New York, never, I couldn't even make it into college. They looked at my SAT score and laughed. Right. And then I, I'm not even joking. I got a nine, 10 on the SAT and they were like, what? 
are you are you broken? What's wrong with you? And you know, now I have a PhD. It's like it doesn't matter, right? So, but why? Because somebody saw something in me and put their hand out, and then I had the guts to reach up and take their hand, and they pulled me up, and then they pulled me up. So I have all these people in my life that have blessed me, that have pulled me up, that have helped me continually. I mean, Doc Parsley is one of them, you know, and he helps me on a daily basis. You know, every time I think about something that he does, it's like, oh yeah, that's what I do. And, and you know, it's, it's like, it's a great symbiotic relationship because we bounce off of one another. But, you know, people like that in my life, that's the thing that I'm most grateful for, just being lifted up by others. So I'm blessed, man. I love that. You know, like I said, I ask every guest that question. Nobody's said anything like that before. That's like such a wonderful answer. I agree. (laughs) So one last question for you. How can listeners best follow your work? I have all these handles. So uh, Dr. Deep Sea seems to be the uh, the main one. So it's D-R-D-E-E-P-S-E-A. And uh, you can look on Instagram and Twitter and all that and check out www.drdeepsea.com. Please don't laugh at the handle. It's kind of a marketing thing, you know. <laughs> no, I love it. I love it. And so for listeners, we'll put links to all of that in the show notes. The show notes, again, will be at melanieavalon.com slash hyperbarics. And then also for listeners, those show notes will have a complete transcript. So I know we went deep, no pun intended, into a lot of things. Yeah, you can check out that transcript. I'm so grateful to have met you. This has been amazing. Listen, and I'm going to put down the gauntlet. Here's the challenge. Tampa is not that far of a drive. Come down here. I will slowly work you into the chambers. We will get you in the chamber. And you do a podcast from inside the chamber. (laughs) Your people will just go crazy. It'll be great. Talk about setting a goal and achieving a goal and having the proper mindset. Let's get you. Goals. I was scared to even get in one. So baby steps. Although now I feel like I'm not I'm not scared. Right? Now you're a rock star. Let's do it. Okay. Okay. In the books. We'll put it in the books. (laughs) Well, you know a guy. I do. (laughs) Have a blessed day. Thank you so much. You too. You too. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. For more information, you can check out my book, What Win Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine as well as my blog, MelanieAvalon.com. Feel free to contact me at podcast at MelanieAvalon.com. And always remember, you got this.